and welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews online since 1996. You can find all of my written work at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast, similar to this one, but it covers more recent movies, maybe a little less history and trivia, a little bit more of my personal opinions on movies that are out there currently today. The Quipster Film Review Podcast is the title. You can find the link at quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into a new three-part series. It's actually a trilogy of films that came out in the 1980s, the Poltergeist Trilogy, and we'll kick it off with the original, the classic from 1982, Poltergeist. Poltergeist is a PG-rated film, although that definitely would be at least a PG-13 today. Gore, scary images, language, and a scene of drug use are the reasons why. The runtime is an hour and 54 minutes. The cast includes Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, Beatrice Strait, Heather O'Rourke, Zelda Rubinstein, Oliver Robbins, and Dominique Dunn. The director is Toby Hooper, or is it Toby Hooper? Toby or not Toby? That is the question, because... Some people think it might have been directed by the person who produced and co-wrote the film, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg also gets screenplay credit with Michael Grace and Mark Victor. Now, for the origin of Poltergeist, we have to go back to some of what I discussed in terms of the origin of E.T. goes very much hand-in-hand. Steven Spielberg, he had intended to do a follow-up to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, It was a much darker film, an alien invasion concept called Night Skies. And the story idea came while Steven Spielberg was doing research on UFOs for Close Encounters. He stumbled across this Kelly Hopkinsville incident in which aliens terrorize a farm family in Kentucky in the 1950s. Steven Spielberg was under contract to direct his next feature for Universal Pictures, and this was going to be a follow-up to Close Encounters, which was done for Columbia. So Spielberg planned to only produce, he wasn't going to direct, Night Skies. For the director, Steven Spielberg first pursued Toby Hooper. Spielberg admired Toby Hooper because of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Hooper at that time was directing The Fun House for Universal Pictures, and he was inhabiting Robert Wise's office. And within Robert Wise's desk was this textbook or research book of a sort about poltergeists. Robert Wise had used that book during research for his 1963 chiller called The Haunting. As Hooper was looking at this book, he thought, you know, Hollywood was really long overdue for another great ghost flick like The Haunting. Hooper discussed this idea with his mentor, director William Friedkin, and they started contemplating that they should put together a ghost story and pitch it to Universal so that it can be done in their very immersive sense-around sound process. Now, Hooper at this time didn't have all the details worked out, but he had this main premise of people who were living and being haunted by the spirits that were emanating from a nearby cemetery. Now, Hooper, in his conversation about Night Skies with Spielberg, told him that, you know, aliens, that really was not his thing. But maybe if the aliens were ghosts, that might be something. Hooper did mention that he was currently working on this ghost story in the vein of The Haunting, and that happened to be a favorite film of Spielberg's. And Spielberg happened to also have, in addition to his fascination with UFOs, a similar fascination with ghosts. 
tremendous curiosities and fears stemming from his childhood, a lifelong fascination with the unknown. He had a ghost-like experience back in 1972. He had directed a made-for-TV horror flick called Something Evil, and so he had kind of that on his mind when he started scouting locations in Texas for the Sugarland Express. He experienced this eerie presence in his hotel room that somehow disappeared when he tried to focus his eye on it, after which the room turned abnormally chilly. So Spielberg fled the room, but the car wouldn't start, and that was another scare before he could secure a ride to another hotel. So Spielberg moved on. Night Skies, he would attach Ron Cobb to that. And then as he started working on pre-production for Raiders of the Lost Ark and scouting locations in Tunisia, Spielberg started to grow very weary. This was a very violent movie that he was about to do, and his interest in the dark horror and violence of Night Skies started to collapse in favor of making its heartwarming subplot that involved this alien befriending a troubled boy, the main focus of Night Skies. So he went to Columbia, he pitched his story change, but Columbia did not want a kid's version of this other film that they had in development called Starman. So Spielberg got Universal to buy the rights to Night Skies, and he would direct it for them while he prepared a special edition of Close Encounters to try to sate Columbia's desire to make a sequel. Now Spielberg then, he came up with another idea of flipping the aliens to ghosts as Hooper suggested, using this family under siege premise, and then he sold the treatment that he wrote to MGM. The title changed from Night Skies to Nighttime for that pitch. He stayed in contact with Hooper while he was shooting Raiders, and Hooper was very excited to work on his ghost story with, at that time, the hottest filmmaker in the business. During that time, Spielberg started writing several stream-of-consciousness story outlines for Nighttime over the next several months. He changed, at some point, the title to It's Nighttime. Unlike other haunted house films that showcased a spooky, isolated mansion before seeing the ghosts, Spielberg wanted his haunting to be set, like E.T., within a suburban home, like the one he grew up in, with an ordinary family that would be thrust into extraordinary circumstances. Spielberg's preliminary story concentrated on a married couple, Stephen and Nora Freeling, and their, at that time, four children living in the fictional Chicago suburb called Vista. Eerie shapes, they start being seen through the static on their television. Random phone calls start occurring with static on the other end in the home. Furniture gets rearranged. Items go missing. The TV starts changing channels on its own. Strange entities are briefly glimpsed around the house. They call in parapsychologists from a nearby university. Family members start getting possessed by these unseen forces. An archaeological dig unearths the skeletal remains of pioneer settlers that were massacred at some point by natives nearby. And a psychic named, at that time, Tajina Barons arrives at the Freeling home, and she starts communicating with these spirits through the static on their television. Obviously, a lot of that got jumbled up in the story sometime later. Now, at that time, Steven Spielberg, to script his story treatment, he sought out Stephen King. Stephen King, though, he proved too expensive, especially for somebody who had never written an actual screenplay before, although he was obviously a best-selling author. So Spielberg then hired the screenwriting team that he was bringing in 
to do a film called Always, which was Steven Spielberg's remake of this 1943 film called A Guy Named Joe, the screenwriters Michael Grace and Mark Victor. Now, these screenwriters working with Spielberg, they imagined much more of a slasher formula film that was very popular in the early 1980s, you know, killing the family members one by one. Spielberg, though, thought no more than one of the family members should die in this film. So they chose the youngest daughter, Carol Ann, that she would die, maybe come back as a ghost. Now, once completed, Spielberg was not really keen on the Grace Victor script. They, he considered it too grisly. It went in two directions he didn't really like, so he decided he was going to write a revision himself. He started doing his own research on poltergeists, and he noted that they made their presence known primarily to young children. And he thought about, you know, how frightening would it have been if the mother from Close Encounters had her child abducted by ghosts instead of aliens? how that might play out, and what if that child were Carol Ann, the youngest of the Freeling family in nighttime. So working with Hooper, Spielberg centered his plot around the family, losing Carol Ann, and then them trying to get her back. Now this reminded Spielberg of this episode of The Twilight Zone that he had once seen called Little Girl Lost that happened to be written by Richard Matheson, who happened to have written Spielberg's TV movie called Duel. So at Spielberg's request, he reached out to Richard Matheson, who supplied a Betamax tape of that episode for him. Spielberg returned that tape without comment, but several key elements of Little Girl Lost seem to appear in his revised script, it bears a very striking resemblance to that episode of the show. A beatific young girl with bangs, her disembodied crying voice tormenting the parents, invisible portals within the house, one of the parents physically going into the portal to try to rescue their daughter. I mean, this was essentially a lot of the backbone for what would become Poltergeist. Matheson later speculated that Spielberg hired him to work on Twilight Zone the movie in 1983, as well as Amazing Stories in 1985 and 86, as some sort of unspoken compensation for lifting his concepts for what would become Poltergeist. Now, Spielberg worked on his revision over five evenings, and he read whatever he wrote every morning to the co-producers, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who had moved into his home temporarily for feedback, and he also informed Toby Hooper as to what he was making. Now, in the completed script, we find this family of five, the Freelings, they're living in this fictional suburb called Cuesta Verde. Strange events start taking place in their new house, including five-year-old Carol Ann conversing with the TV people through the static on their television. Things start taking a deadly turn when the tree outside becomes animated and goes after the middle child, Robbie. Robbie's saved, but Carol Ann goes missing, and she's stolen into this other dimension by forces unknown although her voice can still be heard communicating through the television. Parapsychologists from Stanford come in to investigate the strange phenomena, but the forces that currently dominate the house prove to be much stronger than anything that they've ever encountered. So it requires something a little bit different, the services of a clairvoyant spiritualist named Tangina Behrens. A lot more to the story than that, but I'm sure most of you have seen the movie. You're very familiar with this. If you haven't, just go out and see it before you listen to the rest of this review. I've touched upon why Spielberg did not direct Poltergeist. Obviously, Spielberg did have that contractual obligation to Universal for his next directorial effort, but it was also worked on with Toby Hooper always in mind as the director from its inception as Night Skies. 
But Spielberg also had a lot going on. He had post-production on Raiders. He had pre-production on E.T. He was also busy developing a number of projects, including a Peter Pan musical collaboration with Quincy Jones that eventually, over the years, morphed into what would become Hook. And that remake I talked about of A Guy Named Joe. By the way, a scene from A Guy Named Joe actually appears on the Freeling television in Poltergeist as kind of an homage there. Now, Spielberg had been involved in executive producing films before. His directors usually had ample freedom in the past, but somehow Poltergeist seemed a little more personal for Spielberg because this was a film that contained his ideas. He had a lot of his childhood experiences in it. His own fears were put into this film. So he decided he was going to be much more closely involved with Poltergeist. He would line produce this film, and that meant he was involved in all aspects of the production, including storyboarding, the casting decisions, location scouting. By the way, locations were done in Simi Valley, at least the exteriors, as well as Agoura Hills in California. The interiors, though, were mostly done at MGM Studios because there were a lot of intricate effects that needed manipulation from above the ceiling, so to speak, and also below the floor, so they couldn't really do it in an existing home. Now, Spielberg was busy, but he stayed recharged, alternating between E.T., where he was exploring his boyhood hopes and his dreams, and Poltergeist, which more represented his boyhood phobias and nightmares. Spielberg would eventually deem Poltergeist kind of his revenge on television. Television was something that he furtively watched when his disapproving father was away somewhere else. Spielberg remembered trying to adjust the antenna, and he would see what he considered to be like the ghosts of people in faraway broadcasts within the snowy static that kind of gave him a lot of inspiration for communicating with the ghosts through the TV. In addition, TV here is kind of the family's main group activity, as it was for so many other people in the 1980s. Steve's friends come over, they interact by watching a football game on television. You know, the neighbor is babysitting his kid with Mr. Rogers. You know, that scene basically has kind of a tug-of-war of sorts with the television remote controls. And that kind of also shows TV's propensity. Not only does it unite us by having us all gather around and watch it, but it also divides us because we all fight about what to watch. You know, TV has really come into its own and it has gone from a, a side source of occasional entertainment to now being like the glue that binds a lot of American society together. And it also, as I mentioned, wedges us apart. This was all prior to the internet basically doing the same and probably a lot worse. Much more fragmentation goes on today than television from the early 1980s. And that fits in with the theme of Poltergeist, that the more time one spends through a portal into another dimension, whether it's TV or the spirit world, what have you, the less grasp one has on the real world. At some point, we may lose our grasp on the real world altogether. Now, many childhood phobias did factor into making Poltergeist from a variety of different of the filmmakers. Spielberg feared the ominous shadows that were cast in his bedroom by this raggedy maple tree in his yard as he was a kid. Michael Graves, one of the screenwriters, also had this childhood experience of a tree branch breaking through a window while he was home alone during a thunderstorm that really, really freaked him out as to what to do. There's also a moment in Poltergeist when a drinking glass breaks in Robbie's hand. That came from Toby Hooper's own childhood experience of kitchenware shattering for no discernible reason. 
It also incorporates some of Spielberg's greatest childhood fears. Clowns, that's something that many of us fear, including me. That's explored through this disturbing-looking clown doll in Robbie's bedroom. In addition to fearing what lied under his bed or in his closet like most kids do, there was also a crack in young Spielberg's bedroom wall that he imagined was some sort of portal to a realm inhabited by these little Hieronymus Bosch-like beings that were whispering to him to come in and play with them. Tying in more of that TV theme, the film's opening displays the patriotic TV station sign-off, this comment on television's national importance to Americans as a whole. In addition to that, the film ends also with a shot of the father pushing the TV out of their hotel room. There was actually more to that scene that Spielberg had shot. After a beat, the TV was supposed to roll of its own volition further down the balcony, and that would suggest, kind of as a twist ending, that things aren't really over. You know, the ghosts are still out there manipulating through the TV. But this raised too many questions than it was worth in Spielberg's mind. So he kind of just left it at the rollout of the TV as kind of a wry joke, a satire, really exploring TV as perhaps this portal of evil that steals children away from their families by enticing them to enter other dimensions. Television as something that really divides the closeness of families with each other, with their neighbors, with the nation as a whole. We're all distracted by the tantalizing displays on our TV, all for the purpose of essentially selling us products. We become consumers, and we also become the consumed, at least through the satire of Poltergeist. Now, Poltergeist also taps into the anxiety of children who were, you know, teenagers and maybe even young adults in the 1960s. They outgrew, eventually by the 1980s, their youthful idealism, and they started buying into the American dream mythology promoted by Ronald Reagan, who promised corporate freedom from governmental regulations governing environmental protection specifically. The cost-cutting measures employed by the real estate company in this film are the things that cause the catastrophe. The moving of only the headstones of the cemetery and then building their housing project atop all of the bodies. That really is the cause of what happens in this film. It's kind of a symbol. Something's rotten underneath this American dream that's disrupting the unity of families and the community. Greedy corporations, they have very little respect for the living, much less for the dead. And meanwhile, the middle class, like the Freelings, they always seem to be the ones who pay for the transgressions of those greedy people who are controlling things. Another thing Poltergeist taps into is a parent's greatest fear, the fear of being unable to protect their children from the world's ills. Carol Ann in this film, she's her frightened voice emanates from the TV set, tormenting her anguished and helpless parents throughout. Now, as far as the casting goes, I'll, I'll mention a few of the casting choices. Shirley MacLaine happened to have been the one that Spielberg sought for Diane Freeling. She declined, though, because she felt that the movie was really violent, nothing she was interested in, but it also portrayed the spirit realm in, she felt, a negative light. Spielberg moved on to cast Jo Beth Williams. He had enjoyed her performance in a 1980 film called Dogs of War. He especially really liked the strength of her performance during a scene in which she gets into this fight with Christopher Walken's character, and that ends in violence. Fortuitously, Spielberg had caught that film while he was in London because that scene actually was omitted for the American release. Had he seen it in America, maybe Jo Beth Williams would not have appeared at all in this film. 
Now, Spielberg discovered Heather O'Rourke, the young Carol Ann, in the MGM commissary. She and her mother were there visiting Heather's older sister, Tammy, who happened to also be a child actress. She was appearing in Pennies from Heaven. And Spielberg saw this very angelic-looking Heather at another table. He started looking at her, and when they made eye contact, he would wave over at her. And then he had co-producer Frank Marshall walk over and find out more about her and then make an introduction that would lead to her auditioning. Drew Barrymore was also considered for Carol Ann, but Spielberg preferred O'Rourke because her character needed to be that cherubic, that seraphic entity that spirits would follow into the light of the afterlife. He put Barrymore in E.T. instead. Oliver Robbins, the Robbie character, the one that seemed probably most like Spielberg in his childhood, he was cast after several callbacks. Hooper told him that the scream was the most important acting element in a horror movie for an actor. So Robbins worked with this acting coach to perfect this blood-curdling scream and eventually won the part. Robbins, during the making of this film, had a a near-death incident. The clown prop that coiled around his neck became too tight. Robbins shouted out that he couldn't breathe. Hooper and Spielberg mistook that as fantastic improvising from the kid and kept going, but only when Spielberg noticed that the boy's face was turning crimson did he actually quickly intervene. Now, Spielberg's contract with Universal stipulated that he actually could not work on other films while he was directing E.T., and E.T. was scheduled to start production two weeks after Poltergeists ended, so he was kind of in a rush, and that's another reason why he was wanting to make sure that things got done on time by taking an active role. But E.T. was delayed for a few more weeks, and Spielberg then had the luxury of remaining on the Poltergeist set for the duration Spielberg compared himself to David O. Selznick, kind of a hands-on producer, working with his director to achieve the best success. Spielberg mapped camera setups, and he designed some specific shots. Sometimes he did pickup work while Hooper was working with the main actors. And during the shoot, a visiting reporter for the LA Times came in, and he wrote in his piece about Poltergeist that he was confused by what he was seeing going on on the set, between Spielberg directing and also Toby Hooper directing. He started questioning who really was the director of Poltergeist, and that really sparked a controversy that actually still continues to this day. Spielberg was on set every day, except for this two-day jaunt. He went to Hawaii to build a sandcastle with George Lucas for luck prior to attending the premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark the next day. Lucas had built a sandcastle before Star Wars, so now he wanted to do that before each big movie. Now, due to Toby Hooper's amiability, Spielberg felt a very open collaboration with him to make decisions and to give direction as needed. Hooper had no problems with that. He considered this a collaborative effort. Spielberg did kind of had the final say, being the producer as well as one of the writers, but Hooper called it the best working relationship with a producer he'd ever had in a film. But the rumors continued to spread and dog the production about Spielberg being the primary director, going around Hooper to achieve whatever he wanted. The soft-spoken Hooper, he, according to Spielberg, was not a very commanding presence on a Hollywood set. So if he ever waffled on a decision, he felt compelled to immediately step in and try to address the conflicts. And maybe that was considered part of the confusion. Spielberg says that his interjections really didn't have anything to do with Hooper's competence as a director, more with his own tendency for bullishness. Spielberg's mother once related how Steven learned to be pushy, making high-quality home movies as a teenager. His pushiness got a hospital to let him shoot in one of their wings. And 
an airport to close a runway for him to shoot on. And Spielberg says Hooper generally voiced agreement. He was very agreeable to his decisions. And if Hooper was not, he probably would have left the set if there were any complaint about his interjections. The general consensus from people who worked on the set, especially the actors, is that Hooper primarily directed the actors and Spielberg directed the technical crew. Co-producer Frank Marshall metaphorically described this as Hooper having a close-up lens and Spielberg having a wide-angle lens. But the rumor continued to grow. Industry insiders speculated that Spielberg actually took control because Hooper was coked out and he could not focus, something that had actually resulted in Hooper's removal from prior projects. Being under the influence of drugs on the set would typically be grounds for a director's removal, Spielberg formally assuming director's duties was not really going to be a viable option for him. In addition to Spielberg's contractual obligation to Universal for his next directorial effort, the Directors Guild of America forbade anybody already involved in a production from replacing a director, and that included producers. They also did not allow anybody to direct two films simultaneously, and with E.T. looming very shortly after the production wrapped, Spielberg just did not have time on his side to become the director. His best path to success required shepherding Hooper to the finish line, regardless of the reasons why. But yet, the media continued to ask. Writer Bob Gale called the set's atmosphere uncomfortable. When Hooper gave direction to any crew member, he observed, they looked to Spielberg for his okay before they proceeded. Screenwriter David Geiler, who plays an extra for the football party sequence, he quipped that now he knows what a producer does. He, he sets up the cameras, he tells the actors what to do, and then lets the director say action. Very tongue-in-cheek comment by Geiler. Now, Hooper, at the end of the production, did spend two and a half months assembling his first cut with Spielberg's editor, Michael Kahn, and then he was excused. Spielberg then supervised the final cut, and he guided the rest of the post-production process, including the visual effects from Industrial Light and Magic, the sound effects, and the score. By the way, all three of those things earned Oscar nominations. Composer Jerry Goldsmith says he never at all worked with Hooper. The only time that he saw him was at an early screening where Spielberg basically ignored his presence there, and Hooper happened to leave within the first five minutes. And that lack of presence in the post-production, in the publicity, in the marketing, in pushing the film out also resulted in a lot of people thinking this was a Steven Spielberg production because Steven Spielberg was front and center. Toby Hooper was almost nowhere to be found as this film was being marketed. Now, Hooper does assert that he did everything that was contractually required as the director. The DGA launched their own investigation into the matter to see if he was being undermined, and they did reaffirm that Toby Hooper was the director of Poltergeist. Hooper just happened to have considered Poltergeist more of a creative collaborative effort with his producer and writer, similar to the way that Spielberg and Lucas had a partnership for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he did resist a lot of these questions to the media about whose film it was, because he felt... You know, it was not good for business because MGM's publicity wing really highly promoted Poltergeist as a Spielberg film. He was the hottest filmmaker in Hollywood. Of course, they would want to promote this as a Steven Spielberg film much more than a Toby Hooper film. So MGM very judiciously seemed to cherry pick behind the scenes publicity photos and any kind of documentary footage of Steven Spielberg always being the one who seemed to be in charge. Often, Hooper, if he was shown, if he was shown at all, he was either standing around or Steven Spielberg was actually giving him some instructions. So 
Spielberg himself really saw a little incentive to squash these rumors outright because, hey, he was the producer. This really helped the bottom line for people to think they were getting a Steven Spielberg film. Now, Hooper, through it all, he did what he was supposed to do, and he filed no actual complaints. He tried his best to avoid any controversy, but... When he saw a trailer released that displayed the words, a Steven Spielberg production twice as large as the words, a Toby Hooper film, that violated DGA rules, so he did have to file a complaint against that. MGM was forced to redo their trailer. They issued Hooper $15,000 compensation, along with a full-page apology from MGM in three major trade magazines. Spielberg also, of his own volition, published an open letter to Toby Hooper, in appreciation for allowing his creative involvement as the writer-producer, and he also claimed that the media was misinterpreting their unique and creative collaboration. The authorship controversy caused Spielberg to never let anybody else again direct something that he would write. Now, while this may have been good for marketing, the publicity that was involved here was not good for Hooper's career. What was going to be his breakthrough in mainstream cinema ended up nearly ruining him. Spielberg received the entire limelight for Poltergeist's success as a result. The only thing Hooper seemed to earn was a reputation that he really couldn't command a big-budget movie set. Spielberg did make kind of some amends later. He hired Hooper to direct an episode of Amazing Stories in 1987. That episode, Miss Stardust, was co-written by Richard Matheson, another person he was trying to make amends with by, I guess, taking some of his story ideas, as I mentioned earlier. Hooper also, in 2002, he directed a, an episode for a Spielberg production called Taken on television. But the controversy still existed, no matter what. Everybody had their own ideas of who directed it, and they were not going to change their mind no matter what evidence you showed them. Another issue did come about when they released the film, the financially struggling MGM. They really wanted Poltergeist to have a PG rating. They wanted to draw in children and families, especially with E.T. coming out. This was going to be a good double bill. Prior to the production, Spielberg did remove a few harrowing scenes from the script. One involved Diane Freeling being invisibly raped, essentially, by some unknown force. This changed to just her being pushed up on the wall and up onto the ceiling. There was another of the paranormal investigators being viciously attacked by spiders. Nevertheless, even with the trimming, the ratings board did slap Poltergeist initially with an R rating because they said it had an overall intensity and a lot of peril involving children. Steven Spielberg, MGM's president at the time, and a psychologist that they brought on board, they flew to New York to appeal. They argued that the film actually contains absolutely no nudity, no sex, no bad language, nobody's killed who is not already dead. And this proved to be a good argument because the board unanimously did reverse its decision and give Poltergeist a PG rating. And it did very well at the box office, as you probably well know. Not as good as E.T., but it was the eighth highest grossing film of 1982. Now, as far as what I think about Poltergeist, well, I do think Poltergeist is really a gem. It's horrific. It's still very palatable for audiences that normally avoid the horror genre. Emphasis is really strong on character development, something that the horror genre is not necessarily well known for. Among the family, especially, 
And it really does elevate our fear during frightening moments that we do care about these characters. I think what sets Poltergeist apart from other horror films also is the taut pacing. A lot of the quiet moments are near the beginning. It starts drawing you into these characters and their day-to-day lives. And then as the climax starts developing, it really rips wide open. And it culminates in these cataclysmic events that deliver a lot of terror, a lot of wonder, a lot of awe. I mean, it just keeps you riveted for the duration. And despite that PG rating, remember, this almost was an R rating. So Poltergeist is a very intense film. And that's enough probably to give nightmares to the very young or very impressionable. Classic horror elements here, they mesh very perfectly with the newer style. Most of the points, I think, are scored through the visual storytelling and the characters, much more than through a lot of the sheer gimmickry, which also makes it kind of unique for its era. Poltergeist does still, though, play more to provoke audience and audience reactions than it does to try to deliver a story through logic. So don't look for this film to always explain everything through its story. But I do think that the entertainment value is never at all in question throughout Poltergeist. And compared to most other entries in the genre, especially of the early 1980s, those trashy slasher films and whatnot, you know, this is clearly a superior entry worthy of bestowing heaps of praise for its ability to escalate fear and to deliver nightmares enough to last a lifetime if you saw this as a kid. So all of the things that scared Spielberg and Hooper and the writers as a kid are delivered here to scare even more kids for all of the things that they feared. So all of this means, of course, I'm going to give it four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I do think that Poltergeist is an excellent movie and one I would recommend to everybody. So if you haven't seen Poltergeist yet, I definitely do encourage you to see it. But of course, most of you who are listening, who've listened this far, obviously are probably big fans of the film. So four stars out of four is what I give Poltergeist. Obviously, I didn't necessarily try to answer what I think about who is the director of this film. I'm never going to convince anybody who thinks otherwise, whether you think it's Spielberg, whether you think it's Hooper. But my personal take is, regardless of whether Hooper let in Spielberg to make a lot of decisions for him or not, that was Hooper's decision. He could have told Spielberg, hey, buzz off, I'm the director. And Spielberg says he probably would have gone away. So... Hooper decided he wanted to make it a collaborative effort with his writer and director, and that's how it was. So therefore, what you get is what Hooper wanted, to work closely with this director that he admired and who was very successful with films. And I will respect anybody who thinks Toby Hooper is the director for that decision, but also recognize that Steven Spielberg's DNA is all over this film. As the person who mostly wrote it, as the person who helped develop it and did a lot of the storyboards, and his script basically detailed all of the ways he wanted the shots to go, and who did so much work behind the scenes and on the set. Obviously, you could go either way, I suppose, depending on your point of view as to what exactly is the director. Is the director the author of the film, or is the director the person who performs the job of direction? Anyway, if you have your own thoughts on the controversy here, or just on Poltergeist in general, and you want to reach out to me, you can do so by contacting me. My contact information is at my website. That's at quipster.net, QW. I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. All of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me there, too. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, well, of course, I'm going to be talking about Poltergeist 2. Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, came out in 1986 and a very interesting film in its own right, especially its production, and I will delve into that for the next episode. So check that out if you haven't done so already, because I'm going to go in-depth on that as well. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world.
in 80s movies. Ha <laughs> ha